Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we talk testing and herd immunity with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Also talking about the pelvic floor and so much more. What are your sexual regrets? Your COVID questions are answered by our house doctor, Kevin McLeod, who works on the front lines on the daily. We throw some sexy things in there too. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Okay, we could have had a baby by now. It's been about nine months that this COVID thing has been cooking, quite frankly. And there is a lot of pandemic fatigue. There's a lot of mask fatigue. There's a lot of physical distancing fatigue. There's a lot of staying at home fatigue. But all of these primitive measures are incredibly important. And we are also getting closer to the light at the end of the tunnel. And joining me on the line to talk about some of that light, especially as it relates to testing, is none other than the fine Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, Max Rady College of Medicine, Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba, whose interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses, which is, I know, exciting to all of you as well. Dr. Kinderchuk, thanks for joining me on the line. <laughs> you know, it's always great for me to be uh, a part of the show without even having to call in. So <laughs> I, I feel quite honored. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yes, well, I'm so delighted that you are a part of the show, and I'm so glad that you have such an interest in research in emerging and re-emerging viruses, because who would have thunk, quite frankly, that we would have been dealing with this prolific virus for such a long period of time and it would have altered our lives in the way that it has. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, we, you know, when we go through infectious disease training and, and all of our research, we, you know, we, we talk about the instances where we've seen this in the past. And, and I think that's part of the thing that, you know, we, we forget about a lot. And, and you know, I'm, I was born in 1977. So, you know, right on the cusp of the eradication of smallpox. I, you know, I don't remember those days of, you know, mass vaccination campaigns and declaring the end to, uh, to, to smallpox, you know, and, and obviously the, the people way back in, you know, in, in my grandparents' age around 1918 that lived through multiple years of Spanish flu. Uh-huh. Um, that is something that I don't think we can quite comprehend, this idea of this going on longer than, than 12 months. But we, we certainly have been through that in the past. We certainly have. And some, on some days, it feels like uh, it is uh, going to last longer than we would hope. There's a lot of people who are saying, what do you think? They're, I'm, they're asking my opinion. <laughs> Not sure why. Um, but, you know, they're like, what do you think? Six months, a year? Do you think we'll be out of this by that, by that stage of the game? But there's some things that may help us to get out of that. And last week, we talked a lot about vaccines, and which are emerging and, and actually being transported over from the UK in their mm-hmm. cold uh, trucks frozen trucks, um, but also um, the testing, and in particular rapid testing, is important. And, and we, we've seen actually a surge in uh, testing uh, across the country, not as much as people would like, and perhaps not as much as we need. But why is testing important, Dr. Kinderchuk? And what about the different types? We can get that question second. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, testing is obviously important for us to identify cases. And, and really, when we think about this idea of COVID-19, the, the thing that is really tripping us up with, with this virus in particular is the fact that it transmits prior to somebody developing symptoms. And this complicates the issue so much for us because we, we can't just identify patients that, that are infected based on them being ill. Um, so testing suddenly becomes a, a, a much larger issue. When we're dealing with a respiratory virus, this, of course, makes things even more complicated because it 
obviously looks like many other diseases, including influenza and you know, rhinoviruses and, and just regular cold viruses. So um, with, with testing, we're able to identify those cases very quickly. And then we have an opportunity to try and sequester those cases and sequester those people before they're able to transmit much more broadly in their communities. The problem for us with all of this has been that this, again, was a brand new virus. So we, we don't have just a, you know, kind of uh, a, a custom kit that you can basically, you know, type in, okay, this is the virus, you know, give me whatever diagnostic I need. Um, we, we certainly have to go through somewhat of a development stage on this. And we know that the initial stages of our, um, of our testing through the springtime were actually quite complicated. And, and the reason being was that as a, you know, a global uh, population, we're all dealing with essentially the same reagents and products for doing the same type of testing. And this really limited our capacity. So rapid testing suddenly became, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the Holy testing du jour. <laughs> yes. And, and, and it, it certainly has helped. There, there, there are limitations of rapid testing tends not to be as specific. So rather than looking for the nucleic acid or the genome of the virus, um, you, you tend to either look for a viral protein or antibodies in, in a person. And these often are, are not as sensitive. Protein is always less sensitive than assay than, than what looking for nucleic acid is. The other problem is, is that the initial uh, rapid testing kits were looking specifically for antibodies in, in humans. And the problem with that is it gives us an indication that someone was infected at some point, but not necessarily that they're infected at that particular moment in time. Uh-huh. So then we have to go back and say, okay, well, our only way to do this is to look for the virus specifically, which we're now seeing some discussion about viral antigen and, and this idea of doing rapid testing based on that. And it, it again, it helps us because we're able to do these tests very quickly. The problem, again, is the sensitivity. So, you know, the unfortunate aspect in reality for us as we're developing these diagnostics is trying to balance that sensitivity uh, versus speed and, and specificity aspect. And, and it is really difficult, uh, in particular during a, an emerging pandemic, to figure out which is the better way to go. And then how do we get this approved and get this produced en masse? Oh, this question is for you, Dr. Kinderchuk. Uh, testing is not important. Herd immunity is. We hear a lot about herd immunity. What is it? And will it be something that is helpful for the coronavirus? Yeah. So her- herd immunity is basically building up enough immunity in your population that really you're able to stop transmission of, of a virus. Now, when we think about herd immunity, this always relates back to vaccination. Um, if we were, If we acquire enough uh, and strong enough long-term protection, what we can do is we can suppress that, that transmission of a virus in the community and essentially watch it disappear. The problem is, is that when we start to try and weigh this as far as doing this through natural infection, um, the numbers are stacked up against us. When, when we look at you know, the, the level of immunity we would need for, for COVID-19, which is somewhere between 60 and 80%, um, you know, depending on, uh, on which model you look at, um, when you start to look at what immunity looks like in the population and the number of people that are infected uh, currently or have been infected through either of the, the two waves so far, um, we won't be able to, well, I should say, there's no guarantee that we will be able to reach herd immunity and not without sacrificing millions of people in the process. So uh, the unfortunate reality is um, we have to test to get the, those cases identified um, and try and suppress people from, uh, you know, that are most vulnerable from being infected and, and getting sick. 
Exactly. There's a lot of people who think herd immunity is the answer. So I have another question for you that has come in via text. Uh, Dear doctor, if 500 people have all been vaccinated and are at an event, would they still all have to practice mask wearing or social distancing? Oh, man. So right now, what, what we know about the vaccine is that they, they certainly suppress severe disease. So we, we've seen that with both the Pfizer as well as the, the Moderna vaccines, and even to a certain extent with the, the AstraZeneca, though they're going to repeat that phase three trial. Um, the problem is that we don't understand yet is if that's sterilizing immunity. So um, does it actually stop people from, from getting infected completely, or does it just suppress the overall severity of their disease? Um, so the problem is because we don't know that yet, there is that risk that people can still get infected. They may have subclinical disease, um, but they can still transmit the virus. So, yes, the unfortunate reality is until we're able to get enough people in the population uh, vaccinated and we're able to get those transmission rates in our communities down and it's pressed below, well below 3%, um, we, are, we are going to be doing some level of either distancing or masking for, for a while. Now, we, we will be able to get beyond that, but it's going to take a bit. Uh, would you say we're talking months or years? <laughs> I knew you were going to put me on the spot. I am. Um, listen, I, 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 I'm hopeful that by still by the end, kind of third, end of the third quarter, start of fourth quarter, 2021, okay. that, that we conceivably can be back. And, and maybe before that, based on, uh, on what we're seeing right now for distribution of the vaccines and licensure. Right. We're already looking at shorter uh, quarantine yeah. times, potentially shorter quarantine times. So there's hope there. But you made such a great point earlier, and I just want to stress that again. I, I view everybody as asymptomatic positive. What people don't realize yeah. is that a- people before they have become clinically ill can actually transmit this virus to somebody who has you know, it, God forbid, if you have a comorbidity, if you're a smoker, if you have emphysema, if you have a large abdominal girth, if you have diabetes type one or type two, you're at greater risk for getting sicker. Yeah, this is such a concern for us right now. And, and again, we're learning about this in real time. But what we are starting to appreciate more and more is that asymptomatic transmission is is helping drive a lot of these uh, a lot of these transmission events in our communities. And, and we need to do what we can as individuals to suppress that. Right. Yeah. I, I have a lot of patients who present with their sexless marriage, and because I'm an expert in that. <laughs> anyway, and then that's not really the problem. There's other problems that are under the covers, and oftentimes it's their weight and their mood and their mood and they're miserable. Their blood sugar that are up and down. So they really have to address that first. But they don't realize just how much risk they are at um, for coronavirus and how sick they might get, especially if they're men, because men tend to get sicker with this uh, than well, women do. You know, the, the, the stats that we're seeing, you know, in particular coming out of Manitoba, um, when we look at the, the ages that are being affected and the ages of the people that are succumbing to fatal disease, it's shocking. It is not just a senior disease. We are seeing a lot of people in their 20s and, and 30s, 40s, and 50s that, that are dying very, very early and very horribly, unfortunately. I know. It's horrible. But it's wonderful to have you on the program each week. <laughs> Love it. And uh, it's always great information, Dr. Kinderchuk. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Keep well. Uh, thanks. Same to you. So this next segment, we're talking about something that most people believe only little old ladies experience, but that's not the case. I actually have a friend, he's been experiencing overactive bladder uh, and his brother too uh, for about 10 years since uh, they have been in their late 30s and uh, he, but he won't give up the beer. That's one of the problems. (laughs) I don't blame him. And that's a bladder irritant. But he's also, he just goes all the time, you know, which is called preventive peeing. And, you know, anyway, there's no help for my friend. 
Uh, but hopefully he is listening now because on the line, my guest is a registered physiotherapist with expertise in the management and treatment of urinary incontinence, genital and rectal pain, pelvic organ prolapse, and pelvic musculoskeletal dysfunction. She has a Bachelor of Science in Rehabilitation and a Master's of Health Administration from the University of British Columbia. She presents an information session for prostate cancer patients who will be having or have had treatment on pelvic floor physiotherapy for urinary incontinence. Marcy also runs a weekly clinic for patients post-treatment where she uses biofeedback to help manage urinary incontinence. So there's lots of things to do for urinary incontinence, guys, because men experience leakage of urine as well. Good evening, Marcy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd like to focus a little bit on male urinary incontinence because I'm always struck when a colleague of mine will say, who's in the medical field, will say, because I have some colleagues who are not in the medical field, um, that um, men leak urine too? What? Men? Yeah, this happens to men? So this is just a little secret that uh, a lot of men are living with. And as one man told me, if he ever leaked urine, it would, I said, how long would it take you to get treatment? He said, one drop. (laughs) So um, it's not something that is tolerated by a lot of people. There's loss of dignity. There's embarrassment. You feel older. Sometimes people need to wear diapers and it can only get worse. Uh, So tell me about male urinary incontinence and the reasons uh, men may experience that. Well, there's two major reasons men experience incontinence. One of them is benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is non-cancerous. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about what that is. And that presents more with frequency and urgency and sometimes some incontinence. The other reason that men show up in the clinic is they've had some kind of, uh, they've had prostate cancer and some treatment for that, either prostatectomy, so they've had their prostate removed, or they've had some type of radiation therapy. And it affects um, bladder control, both of the, all the different treatments for prostate cancer. And, and oftentimes men are very pleased that their cancer has been treated and yet they're left with these debilitating conditions like urinary yeah. incontinence. Yeah, yeah. Which can come as a bit of a surprise to men. Yeah, um, I'm hoping most physicians do tell their patients that there is a risk. The problem is that there, it's hard to get numbers from the research. And so people are told different information. And I, and I think really at the beginning, it's just, yeah, you've got cancer and it's reached a point where you have to make a decision on treatment. Um, and you make a decision on treatment and the treatment has consequences. And so I think the big push is, yeah, let's manage this cancer that's at a point now that needs treatment. Um, there is mention that there'll be incontinence afterwards. But I, I think the the cancer word and then the experience of incontinence afterwards once the cancer has been treated, it, it sits differently. It, 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 it's a lived experience now that the cancer is being managed. It's, yeah. And people are grateful, yet they are devastated as well with that mixed Absolutely. emotion on steroids. So yeah. what can Absolutely. men do about, I mentioned a little bit about cutting out on cutting out the beer because it's a bladder irritant and there's a whole list of bladder irritants and I often say to my patients, basically everything that is good is bad. <laughs> Alcohol and really? sugar and <laughs> citrus no, fruits. No, actually Maureen, it depends. So if, if somebody has um, overactive bladder or urgency and frequency from benign prostatic hyperplasia or 
recent radiation, um, those can be really helpful. Uh-huh. So, so we're looking at there. I, I like to separate it into two pictures. So the urgency and frequency experience, and then the incontinence that's related to activity. So um, that incontinence is more related to post-prostatectomy. So after somebody's had their prostate removed. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so let's talk about that one first. Okay. And then we can talk about the urgency frequency one. Does that, that work? Yeah, sure does. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, our bladders are actually a muscle. Um, and when the bladder muscle is relaxed, the very bottom of the bladder where there's an opening that goes into the urethra where urine comes out, that part of the bladder is tight. Now, we have two types of muscles in our body. One of those, one type are automatic muscles, heart, intestine, bladder. We don't control them the way that we would control our biceps, our glutes, or our pelvic floor, the muscle that you do when you, you, know, when you kiggle or do a kiggle contraction. And so when the, the prostate lives right at the very base of the bladder, and when the prostate is removed, the part of the bladder that is also right at the very base that the prostate attaches to, that's the automatic closure system. So that is interfered with into varying amounts for different reasons for different people. And so now that automatic continence, that automatic closure when that bladder is relaxed, storing urine, isn't working as well. Uh And so when you do an activity that increases pressure inside your trunk, um, coughing, sneezing, lifting, bending, exercising, walking, hitting a golf ball, lifting a, a child, anything like that, you generate pressure in the trunk. And if the pressure inside the trunk is, it, it goes to the path of least resistance, and that's the bladder. It's the softest thing inside. So the bladder gets squeezed. So before surgery, that automatic closure was working fine, and there was no problem. Uh-huh. But once the prostate's removed, that automatic closure isn't working as well. And if the bladder gets squeezed, the squeezing pressure on the, on the bladder is greater than the closure pressure, the person leaks. They don't have a feeling of needing to go to the toilet or anything. It's just the activity or the movement causes leakage. Right. I want to ask you how men can treat that type. But before I do that, I have Ron on the line from Burnaby, British Columbia. Good evening, Ron. Hey, good evening. Um, uh, I just uh, have a question. Uh, I got Lance Armstrong, to, just to be blunt. Okay. Um, it's a, mm-hmm. a diagnosed and untreated because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't have BC Medical for a long time. Oh, sorry. Well, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, it, it gives me a bragging rights among men right, right. now. <laughs> but uh, the uh, downside of that is I'm also a prolapse. And uh, uh, back and forward, back and forward, uh, I can go anywhere from 25 to 700 mils uh, before I know I've got a peak. Hmm. Marcy, do you have any yeah. comments? So, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the question is. Um, are you leaking um, urine? Are you concerned about not knowing uh, when to void? Um, part of it is, uh, sometimes if I ignore it, um, I just reabsorb it. I'm an alcoholic, all right? Um, I just reabsorb it. But other times... I've suddenly got to go, and uh, I do the trucker thing, and that's it. Uh, I, I go grab the bottle and 
and find a place. Uh, I, I, I work outside. I'm not around other yeah. people. With, with all due and, respect, Ron, I, I just want to um, make ask Marcy about the reabsorption. What, what are your thoughts on, on that, Marcy? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't... Um, urine can't be reabsorbed, but what you're talking about is the urgency and frequency, not the incontinence related to activity. So I'm thinking what you're describing is that, oh my gosh, sudden onset, I need to pee, I need to pee, and this is really intense and I just need to go. Then there's different ways of managing that. And the, the bladder control is, there's a brain component, there's a bladder component, and there's a pelvic floor component. So one of the things I hear you say is, yeah, I just, I have to, I have an urgent, I just go, I grab the bottle. But I think what you're also saying is, well, sometimes I ignore it and the feeling goes away. And that's one of the techniques we actually teach people to do. But it's not that on its own. It's a combination of different things that we we work with, with people. Exactly. So basically two different types, and you were talking about basically stress urinary incontinence before when um, the, the pressure builds up and there's a weakness there and, and people leak when they cough or exercise. What can men do for that? Well, there's different things. So when somebody comes in to see me in clinic, um, they're coming in because they want to be dry. And myself and the whole medical team, we are going to do every possible thing we can to get them as dry as dry can be. But that doesn't always happen. And in case that doesn't happen or until it does, we still want people to be fully enjoying every single bit of their life with full confidence that they can go and do whatever they like and enjoy it and not worry about leaking. And so part of it is teaching people how to use their pelvic floor um, so that when they do those activities with increased pressure on the bladder, before the activity they tighten, during the activity and only let go after. There's a certain skill in, in being able to do that, and we have to help people have the skill and the knowledge of why they're leaking and when they need to do it. And, and there's all of the pelvic floor kind of work, and we can do that with exam and we use biofeedback. There's a whole bunch of different things that we can do with that. On the other hand, it's until you get dry or in case you don't, how are you going to engage in every single thing that you want to do? And so that's where we help people learn about different products. It could be briefs, pads, condom drainage, clamps, inserts like Contino. Um, so it's, it's learning different management strategies, and it's different for each person. depends on what, they, what works for them, and sometimes it's a combination. Right. I think that combination therapy works the best. Um, but I'm glad to see the Contino device, which you mentioned, is a, is a urethral insert. And that's kind of a bit of an advancement uh, in medical care in this area, which I'm, I'm very happy to see that there are people focusing on uh, treatments to help men. Tell me a little bit about um, how that works. And we just have about a minute left. Sorry. Okay. It's a, de- it's a device that goes inside the urethra. It's got like a little bulb on the end. Um, there's an inserter, you put it in the inserter, you put it in inside the urethra, um, and then you just wear it. And it's, it's like a plug that stops your own leakage. I'm hearing a collective ouch from the radio listeners, male radio listeners out there right now. <laughs> so tell me, since I do not have a penis, <laughs> and I, know, I don't want to ask Mike what he thinks of it, <laughs> um, is, is this an uncomfortable device, <laughs> or do men wear it well? <laughs> no, men wear it well. There Great. can be a little bit of discomfort learning how initially in the first few insertions, 
Um, and we start people on a, on a smaller size, so they get used to the insertion and removal process, and then they progress to a size that helps them stay dry. Excellent. And then they can play golf and go horseback riding and ski and all those things that we're not allowed to do right now. No, I I think we can play golf. I'm not really sure. Hopefully we can ski this winter a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. But anyway, thank you, Marcy, for all of the great work you do to actually keep men and women dry. It's it's greatly appreciated. How can people get in touch with you? Um, They can call the, if you have prostate cancer, um, you can call 604-875-4495, and you can also, uh, let's see, you get my website, you can, the prostate cancer, um, huh, just let me get back here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't worry, that's okay. PC, PCSCprogram.ca. Okay, PCSC. Program.ca, Program.ca 604-875-4495. You can also email pcse at vch.ca. And if you don't have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, you can reach me in private practice at 604-876-2344. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marcy. Always a pleasure to have you and speak to you about okay. this uh, distressing thank- condition. Yeah, thank you, Maureen. The, the, the education and awareness that you do on your program is awesome. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Dr. Kevin McLeod is on the line. He practices as an internal medicine specialist in North Vancouver, British Columbia, and also in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. He works out of Lionsgate Hospital in North Van and Whitehorse Hospital. He heads the Cardiac Rehab and Cardiometabolic Program for the North Shore Health Region and also runs the North Shore Osteoporosis Clinic dedicated to improving bone health and reducing the risk of morbidity and mortality from osteoporotic fracture on the North Shore. His scope of practice is wide, covering all major areas areas of internal medicine and his practice interests include hypertension, dyslipidemia, coronary artery and heart disease, diabetes and osteoporosis. He has a strong interest in disease prevention and patient education and this is what I love about him. He truly believes in providing the highest quality of care to his patients. You can go to his website at mccloudmedical.com but he joins me on the line right now. Good evening Dr. McLeod. Maureen, it's nice to be with you. Although I think my website is defunct now. I put it up like 15 years ago Uh-oh. when websites were the thing to do. And I just, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm in the one business where you desperately want less business. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The one time I give the website prior to. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned Whitehorse. You know, I was just up there last week and it's, um, you know, obviously very nervous community with COVID numbers down here. And they've sort of locked themselves off from BC a little bit more, but totally understandable like the airport it's a weird weird feeling there now you know i don't know if you've had to travel anywhere for work i mean i I have to go in as as an essential service worker but it it's a a very different vibe it's um it's unusual to say the least at times we're living in it certainly is and it's i want to say it's been far too long that uh, i've had you on the program so i'm delighted to have you back dr mcleod and i i want to say to the listeners out there if you have any questions for the doctor uh the doctor is in uh the number to call is 1-877-399-9898 that's 1-877-399-9898 so you've been dealing on the front lines of coronavirus for basically for nine months dr mcleod and all of the disease 
diseases in which you manage or you help people to manage hypertension, dyslipidemia, coronary artery disease, heart disease, di- heart disease diabetes, and osteopor- osteoporosis. These people are at greater risk of becoming sicker if they get COVID-19. I think it's a big thing, right? Like you hear this term comorbidity and, and I, I don't know that people totally appreciate what that means and, and exactly what a, a comorbidity that sort of puts you at increased risk for having a complication with COVID. I mean, the big one, which is not really a true comorbidity, is just age. I mean, the older you are, the more likely you are to have a problem. But, but for sure, heart disease, diabetes, having high blood pressure. And then one we don't typically think about is carrying that extra weight, right? The heavier we are or the more overweight we are, the more at risk we are of, of having major complication. And, and that makes sense, right? I mean, if you've got a big belly there, it's sort of pushing up on your lungs. You've lost lung capacity. You get inflammation in your lungs and fill up with mucus. Well, it's harder to breathe if your lungs are all kind of squished up. Um, you know, so it, it, it comorbidities are... There's a lot of them that, that contribute to this, and a comorbidity doesn't mean that you're, you know, 95 and, you know, have severe dementia in a care home. There, there are younger people who are getting sick from this virus. Exactly. And, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people have been sent home. A lot of people are couch surfing or, you know, I mean, surfing the web or watching a lot of Netflix. A lot of the couples that I have in my clinical practice virtually, they all mention Netflix. They're not having sex. They're actually watching Netflix instead, which is addictive. <laughs> um, people have, joke about the COVID-19 pounds that they've put on. Uh, people are less active, although a lot of people got into biking and boarding and and skiing and swimming and and things but um so a lot of people have put on weight or have a very difficult time uh with obesity because it is a medical condition uh, how important is it to, during this time not only to wear masks and remain physically distant but also be as healthy as you possibly can well it's so interesting you say that right because you know we're so focused on covid right now as you know, we should be. It's a big thing going on on the planet. But, you know, I have a lot of patients who come in and they, they really have gained 20, 30 pounds, right? And they yeah. all, this is all because of COVID. But, you know, yes, that puts them at an increased risk of a complication should they get COVID. But probably even more likely, it puts them at an increased risk of some heart attack, diabetes, stroke, or something else years down the road. And and we all know as we as we gain weight, particularly as we're getting into our 40s and 50s and 60s, it's a lot harder to lose that weight. So it's it's not a time to to just watch Netflix. Maybe you can have sex while you're watching Netflix or do something that will <laughs> get your heart going, right? One of the problems is the partner has gained so much weight that the other one is not attracted to them anymore. Anyway, that's another whole segment. <laughs> um, but a question for you I have is there's a lot of talk. It's been nine months now. You've been on the front lines, two different areas, very busy practice, family, the whole nine yards. Burnout is a big issue for healthcare professionals. Is that something that you have faced um, at this, you know, during these past few months? Yeah, I mean, I have for sure, right? I mean, there's days where you're you're just sort of there day after day and, you know, 40 days or, or more will pass and you never really get that time to sort of get away from it, right? Like, you, you know, even the days I'm not necessarily seeing patients, I've got a couple of days off, there's still administrative things to do or catching up on things. And I think never in my life have I have I felt so behind on things, mm-hmm. you know, I, I am phoning patients to pass on test results, which I normally would have done maybe a week after I, I had seen them. And, you know, now it's sometimes like four weeks later and the patients are very understanding, but it, 
sort of have this sense of almost failure, right? Like, ah, oh, I could have like made that extra call, but you you can only you can only work so many hours because, of course, you do have to balance that with family and kids, and and it's a stressful time for you know, for kids and relationships and other things with, with, you know, everything that's going on on the planet. Exactly. And, you know, we're used to wearing PPE as, as medical professionals, but not all the time, every minute of every day with all the patients. Um, I have Derek from Edmonton on the line. Good evening, Derek. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Dr. McLeod. How are you? We're well. Thank you. That's good. Uh, so I have a question for you. Um, I I'm, was recently diagnosed as pre-diabetic. And so I'm wondering the, about the implications of that uh, with the COVID vaccines and everything. Like, uh, is there a possibility I'll experience more side effects or, you know, how does that work? Um, well, a few things with that. I mean, it's interesting when it when it comes to the vaccines. There's so many different vaccines that are going to be coming, um, you know, and it, it's not clear if one's going to be better than another. I think they all, at least with the preliminary data that's come out, they look fairly effective. Having prediabetes or even diabetes wouldn't necessarily put you at increased risk of a complication to a vaccine. The complications with vaccines are are very real, but very, very, very small chance, right? And and so certainly, certainly my patients with prediabetes or diabetes, I wouldn't be telling them not to get a vaccine. I think it makes perfect sense to get it. The other thing you got to step back and say, okay, well, why did I get this prediabetes? What does it mean? And diabetes is such an interesting thing. There's there's probably a good five to ten years that a lot of us are walking around with prediabetes, don't even know. And then we go on and develop diabetes. And, and what prediabetes means is that your body is desperately trying to overcome insulin resistance. And typically, as we as we gain a bit of weight or we go through life, you know, our body just can't use insulin as well. And and your pancreas, which makes insulin, says, oh, we're going to overcome this resistance. We're going to make more and more and more. And eventually, it just says to hell with it. I can't make any more insulin. And that's when we develop diabetes. But there's a lot you can do in that pre-diabetic stage, Right doesn't take going out and running marathons, even like 10, 15 minutes a day where you push yourself, you get yourself sweaty and short of breath and do whatever you want to do to, to, to get to that level. And then, you know, weight, even, even five, 10 pounds makes a big difference in bringing the weight down. So it's a prediabetes, a very curable thing if you can do it. The one caveat to that, it's very hard to lose weight if you're pre-diabetic because, again, your body is trying to counteract the insulin resistance by making more insulin. And insulin, anybody out there who's a diabetic who's gone on to insulin knows, I hate this stuff, I need it, but I hate it, but it causes me to gain weight. So when you're pre-diabetic and you're making more insulin, it's just really tough to, to bring the weight down. So sometimes there's medicines, and I'm not a guy who likes medicines that much, but sometimes there's medicines we use to really help with that weight loss too. That's a great answer, a great comprehensive answer, and, and um, very informative. Thank you so much. Um, I I was wondering about uh, some of the patients. I know you've seen so many COVID patients in your practice. Uh, are there are there any that have struck you in particular, or, or that were a particular heartbreak um, for you? Because I know, as healthcare professionals, we've all we all have those COVID patients that that just you know bring it brings a tear to our eyes, or you know it just shouldn't have happened did you have anybody like that yeah i mean there's there's um i mean there's quite a few right i mean the 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 ones that are always very difficult are 
you know, people who are older um, and may have some dementia or they've come from a care facility, but they don't necessarily have family that are there with them at the end. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the wife who's got COVID and the husband's, you know, also in his late 80s and, you know, can't easily be at the bedside um, in those last 24 hours, right? Especially if a patient's on a lot of oxygen, because one of the things that happens with COVID is you're your lungs get all this inflammation and you need more and more oxygen. But the more oxygen we give you, if you've ever seen this on a TV show, somebody on a big oxygen mask, what's happening? It's blowing stuff all over the place, right? So you're aerosolizing this COVID bug and you you potentially spread it around the room. So you, you can't have other at-risk people um, unless they're in full gear really, really in there. The other one, Maureen, because we focus so much on the older patients, um, and, you know, they're bearing the brunt of the mortality, but, but the morbidity, like the harm that it causes mm-hmm. in younger people, it is significant, right? Like I I visited a, a family the other day who they have COVID at home and, you know, trying to keep people out of the hospital. So went went to their home and, you know, put all the PPE gear and stuff on. Um, but, you know, th- this is somebody who's in her 40s big big impact to her family right like she's absolutely wiped out for a few weeks and you know it's scary for a family you're short of breath you you know you feel pretty lousy and and then some patients where they had persistent symptoms for four to six months Mm -hmm. some of them are only just now getting better who had contracted it back in march um, you know, some people where they contracted in February and March, and we weren't really doing the COVID test that much then. And, and there are antibody tests available now that we can do to say, hey, did you have COVID back then? Um, and, and their symptoms persist, right? Like you take a 40-year-old mom who is used to running 10K to, to you know, de-stress from her husband or kids, um, you know, and suddenly she has trouble getting up a flight of stairs and is short of breath, that, that's a big impact. Hi. We have a caller for you who has a question. It's Avon from Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Avon. Hey, Maureen, it's Kayvon here. Oh, hello, Kayvon. How are you? Good. Kayvon, Avon, yeah. <laughs> Mike's bad. No, I'm kidding. I don't like to throw anyone under the bus. <laughs> uh, so the question I have today is, you know, my friends and I, something we've been talking about is we're all very optimistic and excited about prospect of a vaccine uh, available sometime early next year. But we also have concerns about just, you know, a vaccine that was pushed through this quickly. And, and can you just provide a little insight on into what goes into bringing a vaccine to market and some reassurances of the safety of it? Sure. Dr. McLeod, you want to take that? Yeah, away? I mean, totally happy to. Now, I am not a vaccine expert, but I, I think I understand a reasonable amount amount about them. Think of a flu vaccine, right? Like we change it every year. So they're developing that vaccine every single year. And it, it's slightly different year to year, right? But we don't sort of jump up and down and get very worried about that. Other vaccines just took a very long time to develop because there wasn't as much funding, right? I mean, a lot of infectious diseases hit countries where they they don't tend to have a lot of money and this is obviously hitting the entire world and there's gazillions of dollars that have been poured into into vaccines you know i i think i think for the most part with all of the data we've seen the, the vaccines look safe with the caveat that you know these are sort of three to four month trials like they're not these long robust things but we're we're going to be in this predicament of, okay, well, we don't know that it's 100% safe, but we're sure it's pretty darn safe. But the people that are going to get vaccinated first are really high risk of COVID, right? You see when COVID goes through these care facilities, it wipes a ton of people out. 
So if, if you know, if I was in a care facility and said, well, my chance of getting wiped out is 20 to 30 percent, give me this vaccine with maybe some minuscule risk of some complication, you know, it's very different when it comes to, say, school-age kids, right? Like, you know, not, again, I'm not part of public health and I speak for them or anything like that, but, you know, we're not going to be rushing to vaccinate a whole bunch of kids that are incredibly unlikely to get sick from this. But, hey, the teachers in the school that maybe are a bit older or have comorbidities, for sure, you want to vaccinate them. So you're always balancing risk with, with the sort of consequence of picking up what you're trying to prevent. Yeah, and this particular vaccine, these vaccines have been tested in 60,000 people, which is a, a very robust uh, clinical trial, would you say, Huge, Dr. Right? And, and yeah. the thing with vaccines that people have to remember, that the, the, if you're going to have a reaction to the vaccine, you tend to have it right away, right? It's not something that develops 10 years later, um, and, and that risk is minuscule, right? And it, it's the same with all vaccines that we get. And, and I think those risks really get overblown. We sort of closed the planet down and had, you know, millions of deaths around the world. We talk a lot about Canada, but, you know, you look at places like India and other places where it's just devastating the Mm -hmm. number of people that have been killed. You know, we got to get vaccines out to to prevent this. There's not some other good therapeutic thing that we can do for a virus other than a vaccine. Absolutely. And we just have about 30 seconds left, Dr. McLeod. Um, when you see the anti-maskers out there as somebody who is fighting coronavirus daily um, on the front lines, what are your feelings? I mean, it's, it's mixed, right? Because you want you want people to have a right to protest. Um, but it, it the masks do work, right? They, they make a difference. It's not a panacea. It's not this perfect solution. But, you know, there was an aircraft carrier where there's an outbreak in, in the United States and, and the people wearing masks, way less likely to get it. Um, there's there's all sorts of data that supports their use. And and I think, think the, the best sort of statement we can say is that they do work. It's not perfect though, right? Nobody's saying that the mask is the silver bullet. It's just one thing along with contact tracing, along with washing your hands, along with distancing, along with not going out if you're sick, right? All of those things together, along with the vaccine and the therapeutics that we use in oxygen and, and hospitalization. Thank you. And we're right. pushing up against the clock, Dr. McLeod. We'll definitely no bring worries. you back. You've got great information. Anytime. All right. You know, uh, this is not the time to begin the foreplay. The foreplay should have begun long ago, my friends. Um, what is foreplay? Well, traditionally, we think of it as anything that isn't intercourse because pretty much people think sex is just penis into the vagina. Um, That's the only definition of sex. So therefore, everything else is foreplay. But before I say that, you know, foreplay can include sex toys. And I want to give out some more. I'm feeling very generous tonight. It's actually not me. (laughs) That's giving these out. It's floravi.com, which is just a fabulous... Uh, company, very interested in the sexual health needs of women. They distinguish themselves because they focus on sexual health and women's well-being. And they have designed their gorgeous products in collaboration with sexologists, gynecologists, and physiotherapists to ensure, ensure superior quality. And they are beautiful, I have to say, and they work amazingly well. So if you would like one, 
uh, or two, or you'd like some lube, or you'd like some antibacterial cleaner. This is, um, I keep meaning to send a bottle of this to somebody who bought a womanizer from me and then said, hey, you know, why don't you sell this cleaner? So I've been meaning to give that, send that off to you, sir, wherever you are. I know you're in my email somewhere and I will. Uh, but Floravi does have this beautiful Steri-Clean antibacterial cleaner for sex toys. They also have um, some silicone-based lubricants and um, short massagers and curved personal massagers, the Dahlia, the Rose. Um, so lots of uh, toys. Also some vaginal weights, which can help with um, urinary incontinence and help to strengthen your pelvic floor and give you better orgasms, ladies. There's also vaginal dilators. Those are often used for women who experience vaginismus um, or other sexual pain disorders. So feel free to give me a call. The number to call is one 399 9898. You can also email me, nurse at hotmail.com, and we'll send uh, the sex toy of your choice out to you or somebody that you love. Maybe you want to wrap it up for uh, the woman, the fabulous woman in your life for Christmas. It's not going to cost you anything. It's a free gift. And um, and these costs, these are expensive, but well worth it. And so Floravi has been so generous as to offer um, these to me to give out to, uh, to women because, um, sex is for you too, ladies. An afternoon delight is fantastic. Get away from it all. Go up to your room, uh, to maybe turn on some music, maybe go into the bath, draw a bath, uh, grab some wine, whatever, get away from everyone and everything and, and bring Dahlia or Rose or Lila along with you. And um, yes, yes, yes. Have a marvelous time. Um, And uh, so, as I said, we're talking about foreplay, um, but I have Bonnie from Burnaby, British Columbia on the line. Good evening, Bonnie. Hi. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Thanks. Good. Um, I had a question. Sure. And I sure would like to win that to help out with the pelvic floor. That's for sure. Oh, would you like the vaginal weights? Yes, or the... Um, Dilator? Or the massager? Whatever you want. Massager, yeah. Okay, one of the massagers. Okay. <laughs> it's great. yours, Bonnie. What's your question? The question is, um, with a t- uh, tilted pelvis, I have a tilted uterus. Can tilted you explain uterus. that? It you know it's real a lot of, a lot of women have that, and it's um, it really doesn't cause any cause for any uh, concern um, in particular. It's something that is noted upon exam um, with, during a gynecological exam, but um, it may actually you know about one in five women um, has a, a uterus or cervix that actually tilts back toward the spine instead of being in an upright position or leaning a little bit forward. And it's called a retroverted uterus is another term, but it doesn't typically cause any health, fertility, or pregnancy problems, but it's typically noted. And oftentimes women will say, I have, um, you know, I have a tilted uterus, but it really um, is no cause for concern. And you won, Bonnie. (laughs) Are you there? Whatever you like. Okay, you can leave your information with Mike. We have Jill on the line from British Columbia. Good evening, Jill. 
No, I guess we don't have Jill. Oops, sorry. No problem. Okay, we're getting back to foreplay. We're almost doing it by now, by this stage of the game. Um, okay, so foreplay. So traditionally, foreplay is anything that is not um, intercourse, basically. Um, it's a considered any sexual activity before intercourse. It doesn't need to be the grand finale or even on the menu if you don't want it. And oftentimes, I feel like the lost that it's a bit of a lost art that foreplay especially in this day and age and even though we're living in a pandemic and but the time before the pandemic was a very chronically busy overstressed i am perfect look at us how great we are uh we're doing everything but it and um and so we're too rushed too busy too addicted to this that and the other thing to actually take that time to enjoy that foreplay. And you know what? Great foreplay is plenty hot when it is done right. But is it time that we rethink foreplay and we actually consider it as to be equally as important as sex, as what we consider sex, which is intercourse or penis and vagina intercourse. But foreplay triggers physiological and physical responses that make sexual activity just a bit more enjoyable, more exciting, and actually even possible. It feels good, but it goes much deeper than that because engaging in foreplay can actually help to build intimacy with your partner and you can feel more connected in and outside of the bedroom. That's why I love uh, sexting, you know, being connected that way. Um, Even if you're not... uh, you know, thinking about uh, having sex, it's a good thing to actually keep that foreplay or to start that foreplay a lot earlier than you might otherwise. Don't think about it once you get into bed. Think about it long before you get into bed. So it may start like the day before even. Um, We can consider giving flowers as foreplay or doing the dishes or making somebody's favorite meal or just thinking about... um, you know, thinking about that other person, you know, a lot of people are stressed in this uh, pandemic. There may be financial considerations. We're teaching our kids at home and we're working from home as well. And you're sharing the office with somebody we share a bed with is also. And uh, stress can certainly put a kibosh on somebody's libido. But that foreplay or what we consider foreplay, that traditional foreplay, may actually increase the excitement and increase the release of oxytocin or dopamine or serotonin, these feel-good chemical cocktails that um, lower our cortisol levels and ultimately our stress levels. And then that ultimately turns into an increased feeling of affection or bonding and, and excitement or euphoria. So foreplay is something that is very, very important because... but. I don't know if I want to continue to call it foreplay, to be honest <laughs> with you, although it does maybe happen before um, when, you know, you actually meet with this particular person that um, that you had regrets about before. <laughs> Wanted to that now. Um, but anyway, it gets the juices flowing. It cr- increases your sexual arousal. And that is not to be confused with sexual desire, but excitement and arousal and sexual interest, they can all be in the same bed together. 
And your body will respond to the sexual arousal by increasing your heart rate and also your blood pressure. Your blood vessels will dilate, and, and that includes your blood vessels in your genitalia. And so that actually can help to increase the experience of an orgasm or your chances of experiencing an orgasm as well. And um, you can may also in, it may increase your um, swelling of the your breasts and increase the erection of your nipples as well. And so that can also increase and heighten the arousal and heighten the sexual experience um, for you. There can also be lubrication of the vagina, which can which can help as well. And, you know, some of these things can, this is why I, I might want to rethink that word foreplay and um, as opposed to making it so traditional, it can be considered sex, you know. It doesn't always have to lead to intercourse. Intercourse doesn't have to be the main course or even on the menu if you don't want it to be. Sometimes it's just nice uh, to just, you know, touch and hold and caress, and it's not something that you absolutely have to um uh, engage in or that it's always going to lead to um, penile vagina intercourse. So, you know, calling oral sex or masturbation or, or hand sex or anything, frankly, that is clitoris-centric, uh, foreplay automatically puts the clitoris on the back burner in favor of the vagina. And, you know, it actually should be the opposite because the vagina has practically no touch-sensitive nerve endings, but the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings as well. Or also, I mean, the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings is what I want to say. The vagina has none. (laughs) And so yet we have put so much pressure on... um, on penile vaginal vaginal sex um and it has the clitoris also has um the not only does the clitoris have all the nerve endings but the pressure sensitive nerve endings are in the vagina they are actually connected to the internal clitoris which extends into your body under the labia and so you need to have some outside help during intercourse uh for the clitoris for you to experience orgasm. So, you know, when your partner is present, is loving, is kind, is compassionate, and is there for you and is understanding and and really cares, I mean, that, of course, is the best kind of foreplay. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.